Hi, I'm Judith Dreyer. Thank you for joining me for this podcast series, The Holistic Nature of Us. My intent is to take us, you and I, into a better understanding of the concepts behind our holistic nature and how that ties directly to the holistic nature of the world around us. How can we connect the dots in practical ways that we are nature and nature's in us? I feature authors and educators, practitioners and others whose passion for this earth helps us create bridges. We'll see what's trending, what's relevant to our world today, not just for land use, but to connect the dots between ourselves and nature. It's time for practical action and profound interchange so our natural world is valued once again. And today I'm delighted to introduce you to Owen Taylor. Owen recently launched True Love Seeds, a seed company that offers rare, open-pollinated, and culturally important vegetable, herb, and flower seeds grown by urban and rural farmers committed to community food sovereignty, cultural preservation, and sustainable agriculture. He coordinates and mentors the True Love Farmers and also grows open-pollinated seeds, herbs, and flowers at Mill Hollow Farm in Edgemont, Pennsylvania, west of his home in southwest Philadelphia. Owen also spent a decade working with food justice organizations in San Francisco, New York City, and Philadelphia, and later managed William Moyes Reavers' historic Roughwood Seed Collection in Devon, Pennsylvania for four years. So good, good morning, uh, Owen. I'm, I'm so happy that you're here with us today at Holistic Nature of Us. Good morning. Thanks so much for having me. We have a lot to talk about this morning, and I'm... Uh, really excited to hear more about seeds. We're in January, people are looking at their seed catalogs. You have a great company that you've founded recently. So tell us how you got started and tell us about your company. Okay, great. Well, I just launched seed sales a little over a year ago, December 2017. And I started this company to combine my passion for seeds and their stories with uh, my work uh, in community with food sovereignty and food justice groups. Um, and so, as you mentioned in the introduction, I worked for four years with William Moyes Weaver, who uh, has an 85-year-old seed collection that he had found in his grandfather's basement after he died. Um, wow. And wow. so I was helping him to maintain over 4,000 varieties of heirloom seeds, uh, and I kind of just fell into it. I needed some extra work while I was doing some community organizing, um, I was introduced to Will, and um, I instantly fell in love with seeds and their stories working with his collection. And so for four years, I learned the art of keeping seeds, getting to know the plants from seed to seed. And, you know, while I was there, I started dreaming, how can I bring this new knowledge and practice back to the communities that I've been working with uh, in various uh, cities and rural farms? Uh, people who are trying to feed their communities and solve the inadequacies and injustices of the food system. And there's a lot of them, isn't there? When we look at our urban areas, what's limited uh, food-wise in those areas. It's true. It's true. It, it, you know, it's especially um, easy to see in the urban places where I've been work living and working, but it's also happening in rural places. And so, you know, food is something that we leave to the market forces. There's a lot of things that are important, like housing, like uh, energy, um, that are you know controlled somewhat by the government, making sure that people have housing and 
and people have um, you know water and and electricity but people you know are not able to access food you know I studied urban planning believe it or not and in urban planning we we looked at transportation and housing and water but we did not look at food and so food is something that is totally left up to the kind of global food system and so many communities are left out as a result that's true and we know that our seeds are contaminated in this process for the sake of enough food for the whole world and that's kind of a myth isn't it uh, if we all looked at our neighborhoods and grew good quality food whoever's called to do so we could provide better food healthier food for our community one farm one backyard one front yard at a time right I mean one of the casualties to this idea of modernization and globalization is that people think someone else can do their farming for them and part of that is you know also uh, saying that someone else can save their seeds for them um, and so you know there's this big movement now for people to get back to the land get con reconnected with their food mm -hmm. um, you know people you hear know your farmer um, there's a big push to go to the farmers markets or even to start your own farms and I think a logical extension to that is thinking about where do our seeds come from. Mm -hmm. um, and there's so many reasons to, to get into that line of thought. Mm -hmm. You know, besides just the, the idea of um, personal and community sovereignty being in control of where your seeds and where your food comes from, there's a lot to be said for saving your own seeds in terms of making sure that they're adapted to your place mm -hmm. and that they're adapted to your taste. Mm -hmm. And so that's a big reason why I'm, I'm excited to work with farmers, both in the cities and rural places, to start to explore what it means to save your own seed and all the benefits that that can bring to you and your community. So give us an example, Owen, of one of the farms that you help with and perhaps their success story. Sure. Um, well, I'll, I'll, I guess I'll start with um, my partner is also a farmer mm -hmm. uh, in our neighborhood in South um, southwest Philadelphia at Sankofa Farm at Bartram's Garden and they um, are already focused on growing crops of the African diaspora since they prim they're primarily working with African and African American communities and so for them they were already thinking about how do we preserve our culture through farming mm. and uh, my partner is from the Mississippi Delta and grew up um, sitting on the porch with his grandmother shelling speckled brown butter beans. And mm -hmm. so when I asked him, just like I ask all of the farmers that I work with, what seed tells your story, that was where his mind went. Grandma, mm -hmm. porch, butter beans. Mm -hmm. So we started to track down where are these seeds because they're not really available outside of the Delta. Um, and so through friends and family, we found um, some folks who were still keeping these butter beans, which are all throughout the Delta. When we go down there for holidays, that's what people are eating. Mm -hmm. And so we found a source for the seeds, and he started growing them on his farm. Um, they're absolutely delicious, and now he's growing grandma's beans again, and we sell them on our porch with the neighborhood kids. Um, so that's that's an example of the story, and so he doesn't have to get them shipped all the time from Mississippi, shrink-wrapped or frozen. Um, he can now grow them on his farm and share them with his community. And he's saving the seed and teaching his community how to do that, correct? Exactly. Mm. Exactly. That's a big portion of it. He works with dozens of youth from the neighborhood, high schools, um, who are employed to, to work at the farm. And a big part of their work is, is education. 
And mm-hmm. so they definitely learn about seed keeping, seed saving um, throughout their time there over and over. Do you find uh, that the, the children are more getting more enthusiastic about it? It seems like we've gotten away from nature with our children. There's a lot of research on that fact. That we're kind of two generations removed from working the land. Uh, are you finding that there's more of an interest from the community, that it's slowly growing and, and the enthusiasm is building? Yeah, I think that, you know, it really depends on how they're introduced to it. And I think having very dynamic, enthusiastic, you know, mentors and adults that are very connected to the work in a personal way can really help. You know, and the fact that they really house this learning about seed saving and farming in ancestral crops and in crops that tell the deeper story of the community makes it more relevant, makes it more personal. Mm -hmm. Um, The fact that Sankofa Farm is founded on um, kind of the uh, notion of, you know, connecting to your ancestry in order to move towards this collective future really gives it a lot more meaning to this to the students. Um, do they do anything with food and in terms of food preparation with these um, seeds that they're harvesting? Is that oh, they, component a part of it? They certainly do. You know, th- that was just one example. And at, at that farm, they have cooking demonstrations. Uh-huh. They cook meals together. But many of the farms that I work with have similar youth programs and do do similar things. They have a lot of times elders from the community who are community chefs that come in and work with the youth. Um, they a lot of them are training the youth to give cooking demonstrations for others. Um, you know, I work with, you know, most of the farms I work with do not have youth programs, but many of them do, and they seem to be integrating intergenerational learning, cooking, growing, um, history, and so on. I think that's uh, an amazing uh, project process that you're sharing because we are multicultural and I don't want to see a homogenized world. I love the differences in culture. I love the differences in cuisine, in tastes, in artwork, uh, in cultural gatherings and I th- it feels to me that what you're doing is a great way to preserve the culture within our diversity is what I'm getting at. So it's not lost. Totally. I mean, that's kind of getting to the core of what I'm hoping to do with True Love Seeds. You know, for my own family, you know, most of whom immigrated from Ireland or Italy um, and some other parts of of Europe, um, we lost connections to our culture, which in most places is land-based culture, Um, generations ago Mm -hmm. in this effort to become quote-unquote American Mm -hmm. Um, and so we've you know my family has really not held on to that as a way to move you know up the class ladder and so my my work on my farm is to relearn and reconnect with the food cultures and therefore the broader cultures of the places where my ancestors came from um, before they landed in New York and Connecticut Um, And so I'm doing the same with all the growers that I work with. Many of the growers have not lost that thread of connection to their culture. Mm. I work with some refugee communities, Mm -hmm. various immigrant communities, communities that are still holding on to their their culture as a a survival mechanism and as a way to stay connected to um, what makes them them. Um, And so the cultural piece is very important to me. Uh, like I said, seeds tell a story, mm-hmm. uh, and so by staying connected to the seeds that our grandparents and their parents and their grandparents have always been connected to, keeps that line connected back in time. 
um, and and provides us this rich connection to culture, even if we, if our parents may have or our grandparents may have dropped it along the way. Mm -hmm. um, so it's been very meaningful for me and many of the growers who I work with that also have um, assimilated through the generations to reconnect. Mm -hmm. Well, it sounds like you work with many farms, many different types of farms. That has to be very fulfilling for you to see your dream manifest you know, that it's actually happening. Uh, could you tell us more about True Love Seeds and uh, your your vision and goals? Uh, you've been in business for a year now, and how is it growing? Sure. Um, so it's it's going pretty well. I, I um, am getting more attention and more customers than I expected. Mm -hmm. um, of course, it's still the first year of the business, so it's not quite totally on its feet yet, mm -hmm. um, but I have a lot of hope. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I started the farm here, I'm, I'm sitting at my farm now, um, at Mill Hollow Farm a couple years ago um, in preparation for the first year of seed sales. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, it's been, this last year was a very difficult year for farmers in the Northeast and Mid-Atlantic. It was very wet and hot, mm -hmm. but we were lucky to get a good amount of seed harvest anyway and I'm really excited about the new varieties that we'll be listing in the second year and the, the same varieties we had last year um, and so you know what seems to be happening is a lot of the varieties we offer are fairly rare on this continent mm -hmm. uh, and some of the most uh, you know popular varieties are I'm imagining people are finding them through Google searches just people who've moved here to mm -hmm. this continent this country looking for tastes of home mm -hmm. and so for example we have a variety called wakate which is a peruvian marigold that's used for its leaves mm. it's, eaten, it's made into a paste um, and eaten in many of the most popular dishes of peru um, we also have callaloo which is a um, in the caribbean is often you know an amaranth Callaloo is a broader category of greens that includes many species, but in parts of the Caribbean, it's usually this green amaranth that they eat the leaves of. And those are two of the most popular products because they're hard to find the seeds of, um, and people find them essential to their cuisine. So <clears throat> seed saving isn't just one aspect of farming. You have to have the plants. You have to know when to harvest those seeds. Uh, could you give us a little bit of, I don't know, information on seed saving or seed harvesting? Sure. Um, well, I like how you introduced the program. I, I can't remember exactly what you said, but around nature being in us and us being connected to nature. And I think that's the first place to start. Beyond, beyond this technical the technical information that I could give you. I think mm -hmm. the first place to start is really get to know your plants. Mm -hmm. um, when we're eating a head of lettuce, we're eating a very young plant. We haven't seen it go to maturity. We haven't seen it in all of its stages. So a lot of people get worried when their lettuce starts to bolt and grow very tall and then maybe flowers come and we're like, okay, it's too late for, for us to enjoy this plant. But that's when the plant is just getting started. And so getting to really know your plants um, and observe them and start to look for where is the seed. Mm -hmm. You know, a big part of the work of seed saving is just getting to know plants in their sexual maturity. Um, and so looking for the flowers, looking for when they start to die back, looking for the seeds to develop. Mm -hmm. Identifying a seed is the first step. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, for some things like beans, it's very obvious where the seed is. The seed is what we eat. Mm-hmm. But a lot of other plants, we we don't usually we can't even we can't even imagine what the seed looks like. Mm-hmm. And so I think the first step is is identifying where the seed happens and what it looks like. And then into more technical stuff, there's really there's wet seeds and there's dry seeds um, to oversimplify it. And things like uh, tomatoes, peppers, squash, cucumbers, those are wet seeded um, species where you're going to be harvesting the seed from a fruit that is mature, that is wet. Mm-hmm. And there's dry seeded crops like beans and peas, which are the obvious ones, but also lettuce mm-hmm. and other members of the aster family and mint mint family like basil um, and, uh, and many grains. So, you know, with dry seeded crops, you really want them to dry on the plant before you harvest. You don't want to pick a, a green bean and expect to get a mature seed. With wet seeded crops, you want to know when the fruit is fully mature. So a tomato, when you eat it, is the right time to save the seeds. But a cucumber, when you eat it, is immature. So getting to know when to pick the cucumber, which will mean it'll get very large and yellow or orange and gross looking <laughs> to, <laughs> to our perspective. Right. Um, that's when the seeds will be plump and mature. Mm. So that's a very broad um, stroke of, of how to do seed saving, and I can get into more details if you want. Mm-hmm. Well, I think those are great tips uh, because, again, we're in January. We're, we're in January, February, March is when gardeners start looking at their seeds. Uh, I'm a member of the Bionutrient Food Association, and they really promote inoculation of seeds, and I think that's a relatively new concept out there because I'm also a Master Gardener member, and I don't recall being taught that through that very good program, but I think the the BFA takes it a step further and says, wait a minute, we need really good quality seed to have good quality nutrition. And uh, another member of the BFA uh, says that our food itself is about 40 to 50 percent of its potential. So we're not getting we're not getting 60 percent of the nourishment from our food system. Right. Well, I, I was um, I'm grateful that I got to speak at the BFA, um, the Hartford area chapter, last year. Um, but it's true. Uh, you know, I did grow up knowing to inoculate peas because of the, you know, relationship between the, you know, bacterias and the roots. Um, but I only recently learned about how it's important to inoculate all different seed, uh, crops. Um, and there's so many other quality um, considerations in, in seed saving. You know, you want to grow fairly large populations of many of these crops instead of saving corn seed from one single plant. You know, you want to think about having a 50 or 100 or 200 plants to really have strong genetic diversity. And genetic diversity is really important in seed saving because our climate is changing, our world is changing, people are moving from place to place. And the the more genetic diversity you have in your seed crop, the better it is able to adapt to your place, to new climate, um, you know, to new climates. Um, And so it's similar to... To humans, if you want to bring it to that point, we want to really have a greater diversity in our gene pools to be able to survive whatever comes. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And so, har- harvesting seeds from larger populations is important. Harvesting seeds from very healthy plants um, is really important. Looking for the qualities that are important to us, like taste, like color, like vigor, um, 
productivity, and so on, really helps. As a seed saver, you become a plant breeder. Mm. Um, even if we're saving from an heirloom crop that's 200 years old, you're still a plant breeder in that you're selecting the qualities that are important to you, like health, like taste, like vigor. Um, so, so that brings us a higher quality food as well. But also, from a holistic point of view, uh, my message and my hopefully my inspiration for others is to remember uh, that what we do affects the next seven generations. That's so when right. we start these practices, we're not only providing for ourselves, but we're also taking care of the land because you can't have good quality food in these plants and strong, healthy, vigorous seed if we don't start with the soil. You know, right. and so that. Every, every choice we make along the way is going to have future consequences. And I think today what we're seeing are all the choices we made 50 years ago, 70 years ago, has, it's having serious consequences from lack of health, uh, chronic diseases are skyrocketing. In our grocery stores, we have aisles of food that are dead. I mean, they're just empty calories. There's no nutrition to them. So I think your message and what you're doing is very timely. <clears throat> so the so the listeners can contact you through your website. You you're in your first year. You have several varieties available, and you're adding more today. Uh, what kind of tips would you give the gardeners besides these uh, for practical use for today? For for looking in in seed catalogs, for example. I would say well, this is very particular to my mission, but I would say what are the crops that feel that you feel very connected to um, it's been so meaningful for me like I said earlier and for very many other for very many other people that I work with to think what crops are very meaningful to me and so for example growing my Irish and Italian crops I my stewardship of these varieties becomes so much deeper in that they are part of my story um, and I think if we're thinking forward to seven generations um, we want to be growing crops that mean something to us and that we, we want to take care of like we would take care of family. Mm -hmm. um, many people consider our, our plants that we care for our relatives. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it's a concept. I've learned many things from my friend Rowan White, who's a Mohawk seed keeper in Northern California. Um, and one of them is this concept of plant relatives mm -hmm. that we have evolved alongside of these plants. Um, and so I think taking them into our constellation and under our wing as if they're family members really helps us to not lose them again like we've been doing for the last 50 or 70 years as we've been outsourcing agriculture to other people and trying to modernize. If we're trying to take back the land and take back our relationship to the, land, the soil and the crops, I think having a meaningful connection to them is important. So think about, you know, what plants did my people take care of and, and try to bring them back in to your, to your constellation and to your stewardship. Mm -hmm. I think that's a really good point because, you know, some of us only have small spaces to grow something. Mm -hmm. And square foot gardening is very popular and it's fun to do. Some of the master gardener uh, associations that I was a part of in Virginia did, uh, did a lot of demo gardens and one of them was the square foot. And it really helps people who live on very small parcels of land or have only a deck and they're putting in a few pots. But why not save seeds from your own plants that you put on the deck? Why not take it one step further? So I think that's, uh, 
you've struck a chord for myself to go back to my garden and say, okay, I've got this amount of space. Why do I need to have 20 plants, you know? Right. To narrow it down a little bit better. Yeah, and I would say along those lines, um, maybe pick one thing this year. If you've never saved seeds before, pick one thing to try saving seeds from. Mm -hmm. um, you know, my mother in northeastern Connecticut grows a square foot garden, mm -hmm. and she has experimented with um, a certain tomato, for example, mm -hmm. or a certain pepper, um, and just kind of dipping her toe into seed saving, and that's where it all starts, and that's where the passion kind of can blossom, but not trying to start a whole seed saving garden mm -hmm. and save seeds from everything but do, do baby steps and, and you learn as you go and you may find the next year that you had some accidental cross-pollination or maybe there's some other problem but that's just where you learn and that's how you get started mm -hmm. and so a lot of times I scare I, I when I first started teaching about seed saving I was worried I scared people away by talking about isolation distance and minimal minimum population size and this and that which are all important considerations for seed producers um, but for the backyard gardener, just do it. Um, you know, I find that even walking through the woods, I save seeds from wild plants. It, it becomes a fun activity. It becomes a way to become connected to these plants. So I think just trying with one thing next year or two things is a good place to start. Mm, very good. Uh, I love your wisdom on that. You know, uh, in the I'm an herbalist and. I remember one gal got terribly overwhelmed learning about herbs, and she had a dream. And in the dream, she saw this big giant cup, and the message was, start with one plant and get to mm -hmm. know it really well. And I think that's a good message because if, if you know one plant and I know one plant and my neighbor knows one plant, something happens in our neighborhood, we can share, we can, we can help each other out, and that's a holistic concept because it's regenerative and it's sustainable. Uh, living in isolation, even plants don't do well in isolation when they're cut off from the forest, when a forest is chopped down. So right. I think these are all very wise things that you're, that you're sharing for us. Uh, do you have another tip? Well, I, I just riffing off of what you just said, I think mm -hmm. that's a great direction to go in. I, I mean, even you know myself starting this seed company, the re one of the reasons I work with so many growers is because I can't do it all at my farm. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, the other reason is that I love working with people and mentorship and collaboration. But like logistically speaking, you, you probably can't save the seeds from all of the things that you like to grow in your one space. And so collaborating with others, you know, saying, I'll do the tomato this year, you do the lettuce, mm -hmm. is, a great, is a great way to build community and also logistically just get the seeds that you need from, from small spaces. Um, so I think that's a great idea. Cool. So, you know, maybe looking for seed swaps, mm -hmm. um, one thing to buy from companies like mine, which I, of course, would love for people to do. But I also uh, run seed swaps in the Philadelphia area because I recognize that's a way to promote seed saving in your community. Um, a lot of times people will bring the one seed that they saved in their garden and then announce it to the group and then swap with someone else who saved one seed. And so that's a great forum and a great place to to build that community and swap the seeds that you've been saving. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I know there's a, there's a small movement. I don't know how much momentum it's gaining today, but libraries are attempting to do uh, the seed banks. Obviously, you need volunteers, you need community to contribute seed, and that's kind of the hard part, you know, if people aren't used to, they keep for their own crops, so they don't think about 
maybe taking that extra step, going down to the local library, having everything labeled. You know, they know it's a tomato, but they forgot to write down the name of the tomato, you know, that type of thing. Uh, so there's a lot of education that's needed within the community for seed saving on that level. Right. But we're getting there. <laughs> yeah, and I went to a, I saw a great little seed bank at the um, Simsbury Public Library when I was speaking with the Hartford chapter of the BFA. Mm -hmm. um, and, it, you know, they had them in little card catalogs. It was, it was very sweet. And, um, you know, I think, I think maybe the first seed library was started by Hudson Valley Seed Company, which is an awesome company in the Hudson Valley of New York. Um, and since then, there's, you know, hundreds, if not thousands, throughout the country. So people may find that there's one right there in their community. Right. Um, and it's just, it does take a lot of coordination, but it's a great place to start. I think, you know, a lot of times perfection, you know, is the enemy of, you know, <laughs> functional or good. Um, so really just get started. Yeah, just get started. Take one seed and, and do it, you know. Act today. <clears throat> Anything else you'd like to add? What else? Well, um, I would say, you know, one piece we didn't touch a lot on, we, we kind of mentioned it here and there, is just that I, I try to work with farms that have some element of community um, food sovereignty to it. So like, for example, with my partner's farm or with Soul Fire Farm outside of Albany, New York, or East New York Farms in Brooklyn, New York. Um, a lot of the groups that I work with, I work with them because I really admire the ways they're coming up with solutions to those food access, um, you know, problems in their communities. And so I, I wanted to make sure that that is something we mentioned on this program as well. And that's really where I come to this work from. Um, and, you know, working with them around seed saving and seed production, my hope is that that just deepens helps to deepen the work that they're doing in their community and the connection that their community members feel to the food and the seeds that they're producing. Um, and so it's important to me beyond my, my passion for nature, my passion for seeds, um, to always also stay focused on the kind of structural inequities in our society and how can we make a difference um, at the community level. Um, of course, the policy level is important too, but with the seeds, they, they're both metaphorical and very concrete ways to um, address some of these issues in the communities. Um, and so, again, I just wanted to throw that out there that there are a lot of people who are coming up with solutions. Right now we see a lot of problems and there are a lot of people coming up with solutions and I am excited to support that in small ways through, through True Love Seeds. Well, thank you for that, because that's my deepest desire and passion and intention with this series, is to get folks like you uh, to be more well-known in some way, if I can contribute in that in some way. We have to help each other out, or we're sunk. You know, right. I think we're learning that. Um, it doesn't matter where we live anymore. The Internet connects us. And right. I, what I love about gardening is that we have an Internet. We have this beautiful mm -hmm. underground that's so metaphorical for our above-ground life, you know. And right. the other piece that I, I really appreciate from your message is cultivating a relationship with all aspects of, of working with our land. Uh, we don't have to have a garden to have an, a relationship with our land. Right. And that's the piece I'm trying to promote as well. And the other piece that you mentioned is that the species are our relatives. And my native ancestors and elders that I've worked with would say to me something like, 
you know, Brother Fox showed up today. And when we refer to our nature, our natural world in that way, it automatically begins a relationship. Right. I mean, and, and we've allowed over the generations that relationship to be broken and taken from us. And I think it's, you know, this is a step towards rebuilding and reclaiming and mending that relationship. Absolutely. Well, that's a great way for us to uh, end our chat today. Could you leave us with your contact information? Sure. My website is www.trueloveseeds.com. People can get in touch with me at trueloveseeds at gmail.com. I'm also on Instagram at seedkeeping, um, on Facebook at trueloveseeds, and on Tumblr at seedkeeping.tumblr.com. Wonderful. Well, thank you again for your time and sharing your expertise and your enthusiasm and most of all your passion for for being a part of the solution, and I'm really grateful. Well, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Okay, folks. Well, thank you again for joining us at The Holistic Nature of Us. Um, as I said, I'm very inspired, and uh, Owen has offered us uh, a lot of practical advice today, and I hope you'll take one of his tips and and think about it for your garden plans. This is Judith Dreyer. I'm the author of At the Garden's Gate book and blog. My book is available through my website, which is www.judithdreyer.com, as well as several distribution arms, such as Amazon, Nook, Goodreads, and more. I'd like to remind all of you that a transcript is available for each podcast. Please like and share them. Let's support each other and get the word out. Remember, now is the time for practical action and profound interchange so we value our world again. Enjoy your day.